you have a copy of the Scriptures, let me invite you once again to turn to the book of Genesis. And we are in the midst of this series of expositions through the book of Genesis. We'll take a brief break uh, next Lord's Day and look at a prophecy of Christ in in Isaiah. But uh, for this morning, we're continuing this exposition of the book of Genesis, this first book of the Christian Scriptures. And today, we're going to be looking at Genesis 9, verses 1 through 17. Genesis 9, verses 1 through 17. Let me invite you as you're able to stand and honor the reading and the hearing of God's Word. Again, I'm reading from Genesis 9 and verse 1 where Moses faithfully records. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said unto them, Be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. And the fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every fowl of the air, upon all that moveth upon the earth and upon all the fishes of the sea. Into your hand are they delivered. Every moving thing that liveth shall be meat for you, even as the green herb have I given you all things. But flesh with the life thereof, which is the blood thereof, shall ye not eat. And surely your blood of your lives will I require... At the hand of every beast will I require it, and at the hand of man. At the hand of every man's brother will I require the life of man. Whoso sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God made he man. And you be be ye fruitful, and multiply. Bring forth abundantly in the earth, and multiply therein. And God spake unto Noah, and to his sons with him, saying, And I, behold, I establish my covenant with you and with your seed after you and with every living creature that is with you of the fowl, of the cattle, and of every beast of the earth with you from all that go out of the ark to every beast of the earth. And I will establish my covenant with you. Neither shall all flesh be cut off any more by the waters of a flood. Neither shall there be any more neither shall there any more be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the token of the covenant which I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for perpetual generations. I do set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be for a token of a covenant between me and the earth. And it shall come to pass when I bring a cloud over the earth that the bow shall be seen in the cloud. And I will remember my covenant, which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall no more become a flood to destroy all flesh. And the bow shall be in the cloud. And I will look upon it, that I may remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is upon the earth. And God said unto Noah, This is the token of the covenant which I have established between me and all flesh that is upon the earth. May God bless today the reading and the hearing of His Word. And let's join in prayer. Gracious and loving God, we do stand once again before Thy Word, before Thy God-breathed Word. And we ask, O God, that You would give us the illumination of the Holy Spirit, that the Spirit would enlighten our eyes, in the knowledge of the truth, 
that we would be able to see Christ in His beauty, that You would unstop our ears, that You would loosen our minds and hearts. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Again, we're continuing today this ongoing series of the book of Genesis. And Genesis in these opening chapters provides for us a foundational record of primordial or primeval history, the earliest history. It tells us the story of everything from the beginning. And one of the most important events given most attention within these opening chapters is this account of the great flood that took place in the days of Noah. Man's ever downward spiral in sin after the fall of Genesis 3 had consequences for mankind and for all creation. And so God, looking upon the wickedness of man, that every imagination of his heart was evil, God determined to bring about a flood of destruction. But in his great mercy, he preserved a remnant, both of men and animals, in the ark. Last time I noted that we could break the flood narrative within these opening chapters of Genesis into three parts. Sort of a pre-flood, the flood, and the post-flood. And so Moses records what happened before the time of the flood from Genesis 6.1 to Genesis verse 7, chapter 7 and verse 10. Then it describes the flood itself, the catastrophe itself. The Greek word, remember, for flood is cataclysmos, the, the cataclysm that was the flood. And that's from Genesis 7, verse 11, to chapter 8, verse 14. And then there is the time after the flood, the post-flood narrative. And that began, uh, we saw last week, in Genesis 8 and verse 15, and extends now through the end of chapter 9. So our, our setting today, our passage, is dealing with what happened after the flood had ended. And we know, looking back to chapter 8, verse 16, that God gave a commission or a command. He told Noah uh, to go out from the ark. And also, in chapter 8, verse 17, He told him to bring forth with him every living thing that was with him in the ark. And so, uh, Noah responded to that. He came out. And we gave quite a bit of attention last time to Noah's first act once he departed from the ark, recorded there in verse 20. That he builded an altar unto the Lord. His first act as he exited the ark, as I noted last week, was not to build a shelter. It wasn't to build a business. It wasn't to build a school. It wasn't to build a hospital or a library or a state house. It was to build a chapel, to build an altar and to worship. Showing us something about the preeminent place of worship in the life of man. That man needs worship in order to be fully what He is. And in light of God's salvation, men are to worship. At the heart of our passage today, which continues to tell what happened after the flood, there is a record of a covenant that God established with Noah and his seed. We sometimes call this the Noahic covenant. And this covenant is established once the flood had ended. Alongside of that covenant, as a token of it, God placed the bow in the clouds. And of course, many are familiar with that great symbol of God's 
desire not to again destroy the earth in a flood. We see in this passage overall the God who will be praised later in the Psalms, in places like Psalm 103 and verse 8, which says, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and plenteous in mercy. And so today that's our our task before us, to look at this covenant and to look at the token of this covenant. As we turn to our passage, looking at chapter 9, verses 1 through 17, we can divide it into two parts, our text into two parts. First, in verses 1 through 7, we see that God blesses Noah and his sons and issues commandments unto them, orders unto them. And then secondly, in verses 8 through 17, we see, as noted, God's establishment of this covenant with Noah and with his seed. And so let's see if we can look at these two parts of our narrative and walk through the passage together. Let's begin looking at verses 1 through 7, which is a record of God blessing and issuing commandments unto Noah and his sons. Now, we noted last time that after the flood, again, it had had begun to record for us in chapter 8, verse 15, what had happened after uh, the flood had come to an end. Um, We saw that there were parallels with the description, the narrative of the initial creation. And there's almost a kind of a recreation that takes place after the flood. Necessarily so. Imagine water so high that it was, you know, 15 cubits ahead, uh, above the highest mountains. So obviously a lot, there was a lot of destruction. There had to be a kind of a new creation that would take place. And so there are many parallels to this. Last time I noted the beginning of creation, we're told in Genesis 1-2 that the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. And how did the flood come to an end? It says in Genesis 8-1, God made a wind, a ruach, a spirit, His Spirit to pass over the earth and the waters assuaged. At the beginning of creation, we have a record of God blessing various creatures, including the fowl of the air, and commanding them to be fruitful and to multiply. If you look back at Genesis 2 and verse 22, you see uh, these words, And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters of the seas, and let fowl multiply in the earth. And now, after the flood, we see similar commands given to the creatures from the ark, including the fowl of the air. And we saw this last time. If you look at chapter 8 and verse 17, where uh, the Lord commanded, Bring forth with thee every living thing that is with thee, of all flesh, both the fowl, of the cattle, of every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth, that they may breed abundantly in the earth, and be fruitful and multiply upon the earth. See, it's a recreation. The same type of commandments as were commanded at the creation. At the beginning of creation, God, on the sixth day, made man as the crown of creation, And you might remember that there was a special blessing given unto mankind who alone had been made in God's image and likeness and also a special command unto mankind to be fruitful and multiply and to exercise dominion upon the earth. So if you look back at Genesis 1 and beginning in verse 26, it says, And God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over the cattle and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. 
And then what do we find after the flood? Well, we're at Genesis chapter 9 and verse 1. We find a reiteration, a repetition of that command. And that's important because what it tells us is that God has not given up on man even though now he is in a fallen condition. Even fallen man has a command from God to be fruitful, to multiply, and to exercise dominion. And even fallen man is blessed by God. Look at verse 1. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said unto them, Be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. I mean, really, we, we ought to just stand in awe of just that first statement. And God blessed Noah. God blessed Noah. Noah was a fallen man. He found grace in the eyes of the Lord, but he was a fallen man, as were his sons. Later on, the Lord Jesus, the second person of the Godhead made flesh, would teach in the Sermon on the Mount, and he would teach his disciples, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you. Matthew 5.44 And now, here we see, long before the incarnation of our Lord Jesus, God is blessing sinful men who spiritually speaking, though every uh, evil imagination of their hearts is bent towards wrong so that they become His enemies, and yet He's still blessing them. He's still blessing even fallen men. The command to be fruitful and multiply is a reminder that the generative capacity of man that had been given to him before the fall has not been ended by the fall or by the flood. The command to replenish the earth in verse 1 is striking because as I said at this point, the world must have been at that time a disorderly mess. A disorderly mess, a, a year of flood and the aftermath. It must have been uh, just chaotic everywhere. And yet man was again placed as a sentinel as God's steward over the creation. Man was given responsibility for this task of dominion even though he had spectacularly failed at that task. I was thinking about that. How many of you as parents, sometimes you give tasks to your children, sometimes they do it well, but sometimes they foul things up. Sometimes you're teaching your child how to drive, for example. They might go out and they might have a fender bender. They might even have a bad wreck. And does that mean you take the keys away and tear up their driver's license? You might, depending on the situation. I won't judge you for that. But most often you're going to say, you know, uh, there's some grace for you here. I'm gonna, we're going to talk sternly about this, but there's some grace for you here. And if I could draw a very dim analogy, even though there's been this sin and this chaotic situation, here is, here is our Heavenly Father. Our Heavenly Father still giving responsibilities unto men who had been irresponsible and not proven themselves trustworthy. At the beginning of creation, man had been given dominion especially over the animals. And I read that in Genesis 1.26. When we look at Genesis 9 verse 2 after the flood, we see a reiteration of that, but it's also slightly been changed in light of the fallen circumstances of man. Look at verse 2. 
And the fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every fowl of the air, upon all that moveth upon the earth and upon all the fishes of the sea. And so man still has that dominion over the animals, but what is introduced now is a sense that these creatures have a fear of man. And we get the idea that perhaps in the pre-fallen world, man's dominion over the animals might have been done apart from fear. Or perhaps without the use of any kind of force or violence. But now, in these fallen circumstances, things have been altered. And yet, again, the responsibility is given to man. Look at the last line of verse 2. Into your hands are they delivered. You know that man has been given the stewardship of our fellow creatures. We talked about this before when we were looking at Genesis 1 and 2. Particularly as believing men, we are to be those who take care of animals. We're, we're to be compassionate and caring with the, 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 the taking care of animals. Whether you raise them domestically, whether you have them as a pet in your home, there's something about a responsibility that God has given to mankind and we exercise that in the way that we treat uh, these creatures. That's why it was Christians who formed things like the SPCA back in England years ago to care for animals because they saw it as a Christian duty to take care even of, even of these animals that are less than men but still given a man is given a responsibility over them. In verse 3, we see a reason that this fear is introduced. And that is, in the post-flood world, every living thing might now be used as meat or food for man, which wasn't true before the fall. Look at verse 3. Every moving thing that liveth shall be meat for you, even as the green herb have I given you all things. And prior to the, to the fall, and prior to the flood, man had eaten green herbs. You can look back at Genesis 1 verse 29, even Genesis 2 verse 16, when man was told in the, in the garden that he could eat of any of the fruit of any of the trees except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And now in the, in the post-flood world, one thing that has changed is that human beings are now given license by God to, to have all these creatures for meat or for food. It's interesting that at this point we do not read of any dietary laws that will be given later in Leviticus 11 spelling out which animals might be eaten by the men of Israel and which might not. After the coming of Christ, of course, those dietary rules would be taken away from God's people, returning things to the way they were in Noah's day. Why did God do it this way? Well, sometimes we have to just respond as Isaiah did in Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9. His ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. There is, however, one dietary stipulation that is made in the time after the flood in verse 4. It says... But flesh with the life thereof, which is the blood thereof, shall ye not eat. That is, the Lord tells Noah and his sons that they are not to eat the flesh of animals with the life's blood within it. This law will be repeated later in the law of Moses. And there as here, emphasis will be given to the life of the animal being especially within or represented in its blood. Take away the blood and the creature ceases to exist. So blood becomes a sign of life. 
And God says blood was not to be consumed or eaten. Like I said, this will be repeated by Moses. If you look at Leviticus chapter 17, verse 10, it says, And whatsoever man there be of the house of Israel or of the strangers that sojourn among you, that eateth any manner of blood, I will even set my face against that soul that eateth blood and will cut him off from among his people. Verse 11 of Leviticus 17, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that maketh an atonement for the soul. Leviticus 17, verse 14, For it is the life of all flesh, the blood of it is for the life thereof. Therefore I said unto the children of Israel, You shall eat the blood of no manner of flesh, for the life of all flesh is the blood thereof. Whosoever eateth it shall be cut off. And this is also repeated by Moses in Deuteronomy 12, verse 23. Aside from the blood being so vitally associated with life, later on in the experience of Israel, it will also distinguish them as a people from the pagan nations that consumed blood, and this was often associated with their false worship, with pagan worship practices. So in Leviticus 19, verse 26, Moses will write, uh, recording the words of the Lord, Ye shall not eat anything with the blood, and neither shall ye use enchantment nor observe times. It's interesting that many years later, at the time of the apostles, when there is a controversy at the church of Antioch, and uh, Paul and Barnabas go up to consult with the apostles in Jerusalem about whether believers, Gentile believers, should be circumcised, the apostles meeting in Jerusalem as recorded in Acts 15, declare that circumcision is not necessary, but they provide a list of things that these Gentile converts should avoid. And on that list, there is included things like don't eat things that are strangled and refrain from blood. You can read that in Acts 15, verse 20, Acts 15, verse 29. There was likely still at the time of the apostles the consumption of blood that was associated with pagan practices. And one way that those Gentile believers could show that they had broken with their pagan past was not to eat uh, blood, not to consume blood. And so we see a thread that goes all the way back to the time of Noah. The Lord then continues to speak about blood and links it with what we might call today the sanctity of life, especially human life. And so look at verse 5. And surely your blood of your lives will I require. At the hand of every beast will I require it. And at the hand of man, at the hand of every man's brother, will I require the life of man. We might think back to Cain and Abel. Remember in Genesis 4 how Cain rose up and slew his brother Abel. And we talked then about just how shocking, how disturbing that whole scene is. Never before had a man risen up and, and, and struck down another until Cain rose up and struck down righteous Abel. It was only at that point that a man had presumed because of his sinfulness to strike down a fellow man, a fellow image bearer, and even his brother. That a man would presume to have sovereignty over a life, over one 
made by God was an outrage. And that murderous spirit continued among Cain's descendants. Remember in Genesis 4.23 when it describes Lamech who slew a young man to his own hurt. Here is God restoring the guardrails that Cain and Lamech and their like had crashed through. God is restoring the guardrail and telling men about the sanctity of life. He begins, if we look back at verse 5, by telling Noah and his sons, first of all, that God will require the blood of their lives. This is a protection for them. And surely your blood of your lives will I require. In other words, He so values their lives that He will hold in contempt any who would take their lives. The next line is intriguing as it says in verse 5, at the hand of every beast will I require it. It's intriguing because God says here that He will require the blood of their lives if taken even by a beast. And any animal today that takes the life of a man is often an animal that's put down. That's a practice that generally continues today. <coughs> the emphasis upon this is to stress and to elevate the understanding of the significance of every man's life. This leads to the, the statements then that come afterwards in verse 5. He also required at the hand of man. And then he, the last line there, verse 5, at the hand of every man's brother will I require the life of man. This is an echo of Cain's statement before the Lord in Genesis 4. Remember in Genesis 4.9, the Lord came after Cain had struck down his brother and the Lord asked, not because he was ignorant of it, but because he was investigating. And he said, where is Abel, thy brother? Remember Cain's famous answer, am I my brother's keeper? He said that trying to cast off his duty towards his brother and trying to hide his wicked deed. And here the Lord uses similar language. At the hand of every man's brother will I require the life of man. Here the term brother is used as an expansive term talking about man's relationship to his fellow man. In this sense it would be right for us to talk about the brotherhood of man. It is man's duty both to God and to his fellow man not to unjustly take the life of a human brother. The divine instruction continues in verse 6. Whoso sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. This passage is one of our key proof texts for what we know today as capital punishment or the death penalty. It sounds ironic, but God so values the life of man that the punishment for one who unjustly takes the life of a fellow human being, sheds his blood, would be punishment by taking his own life. That's how serious it is in God's sight. This teaching undergirds Paul's instructions in Romans 13, where he traces out the duties that God has given to the civil magistrate or the civil authority. He says every person in civil authority is there because they've been ordained by God. And he says in Romans 13.4 of the civil authority, He is the minister of God to thee for good. But if thou do that which is evil, be afraid. For he beareth not the sword in vain. 
For he is the minister of God, a revenger to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. So Genesis 9 verse 6, Whoso sheddeth blood, man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed, is not licensed for vigilante justice, but there is a sphere, there is an authority that's given to the the civil magistrate that he might bear the sword to restrain evil. That's how highly God values the life of men. And notice the last line there in verse 6. Why does God value the life of man so much? For in the image of God made he man. Man is the image bearer. He was made in the likeness of God. We see that again Genesis 1 verses 26 and 27. And now the Lord reiterates that fallen man, though that image of God that is in him has been tarnished, he is still an image bearer. And that image is not to be, uh, is not to be ignored. The Apostle James will write in James 3.9, speaking about the tongue. He said, therewith, with the tongue, bless we God, even the Father, and therewith curse we men, which are made after the similitude of God. Here James stretches a little further. It's wrong not only to take the life of a man, but it's also wrong to slay his reputation and to speak evil of him with your tongue. Why? Because men are made in the image of God. Man's life is still of unique value in the world because it is of unique value to the Creator. And all this is given even before, ever before, Moses even goes to Sinai in Exodus 20 and receives the Ten Commandments, including the Sixth Commandment, Thou shalt not kill. Even before Sinai, God has declared to Noah and his sons the special value of the life of man in his sight. This first part of our passage then ends in verse 7 with a repetition of what was said in verse 1. Remember we've talked before about what are, what are called literary inclusios. It starts one way and it ends re- repeating, emphasizing. And it's that, that command given there in verse 7. And you be ye fruitful and multiply, bring forth abundantly in the earth and multiply therein. And there is, uh, again, a command uh, given by God. And what we're told here is life is not over on the earth after the flood. Life is being renewed. Men and creatures will once again populate the earth. And you know what? It didn't have to be this way. God could have cut men off at this point. He could have taken away their responsibilities. He could have taken away their generative powers But he didn't do that. And this shows us the greatness of God, the goodness of God, the mercy of God toward us. Let's move to the second part now of our text, which is verses 8 through 17. We should notice at this point that uh, this is uh, uh, the speech of God. It'll start off in verse 8. And God spake unto Noah. And and if if we look back on it, Uh, we realize as we're reading through uh, this account of the flood that God has been speaking to Noah all this time. Uh, Before the flood, if you look back at Genesis 6 and verse 13, He had spoken to Noah and God said unto Noah. 
And then uh, uh, while uh, he was uh, in the, the midst of the, the flood, God was speaking to Noah. And then immediately after the flood, uh, it says in chapter 8, verse 15, and God spake unto Noah. And really all of Genesis 9 is a, a speech. Our passage we're looking at, verses 1 through 17, is a speech of God. And it's repeated several times that God is speaking. Uh, so look at verse 1. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said unto them. And here in verse 8. And God spake unto Noah and, his, uh, and to his sons with him saying. Uh, so we've got the speech of God. Look at verse 12. And God said. Look at verse 17. And God said unto Noah. And so verses 1 through 17. All of it really is, is a speech. And they're kind of like these four movements or parts of it. And so the, the first speech is verses 1 through 7. And the last three references to him speaking are going to be here in verses 8 through 17. God uh, is not silent. He speaks to his people. And what does he say? Look at verse 9. And I, behold I, establish my covenant with you. And with your seed after you. Notice the way this is worded. And I. Behold I. Establish my covenant with you. Who is establishing this covenant? Did Noah come and apply for a covenant with God? No. God is the actor. God is the initiator. And what we're reminded here is of the fact that any covenant between God and man must depend upon the condescension of God. Man cannot initiate a covenant with God. It must come from heaven down to earth. A covenant cannot begin on earth and reach up to heaven. We've got the word covenant. This is actually the second time in Genesis and therefore the second time within the Christian scriptures that the word covenant appears. The first one was also with respect uh, to uh, Noah. If you look back at Genesis 6 verse 18, but with thee will I establish my covenant. And now we've got the second ever use of this word covenant in Hebrew berit uh, in the scriptures. What is a covenant? A covenant has been defined as a guaranteed commitment between two parties. The Old Testament scholar John Currid defines covenant as a binding contract between God and man, one that God has initiated and administered. It's interesting if you look here, Currid pointed this out in his commentary, that in verses 9 through 17, the word covenant is used seven times. Verse 9, verse 11, verse 12, verse 13, verse 15, verse 16, verse 17. Do you think that's an accident? No. Seven's a number of perfection. Anything God does is perfect and He's making this covenant with Noah in a, in a perfect way. And it's being repeated over and over. Sevenfold times we're told this is a covenant that's being made. made. Though this word is first explicitly used in the scriptures, beginning in Genesis 6.18 and now, now repeated here in our passage, this word is first specifically used, covenant, 
in relationship to this contract with Noah. Most agree that that the, the, the concept of a covenant appears earlier in the book of Genesis, in Genesis 2, verses 15 through 17. And we talked about this when we were earlier in this exposition, but if you look at Genesis 2, 15 through 17, man before the fall, when he was placed in the garden, God entered into a kind of covenant with him. Look at Genesis 2, 15 through 17. And the Lord God took the man and put him into the garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it, for in the day that thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. This is sometimes called the covenant of creation, or the covenant of life, or the covenant of works. In that covenant, God gave a command or a rule that man was not to eat of the forbidden fruit. There was a guaranteed commitment from God to man. If he kept that commandment, he would have life. But if he ate the forbidden fruit, then he would surely die. Therefore, it was a conditional covenant. On the condition of keeping it, man gets life. On the condition of breaking it, man gets death. And we all know what happened to man. He broke that commitment and therefore the wages of sin is death. Though we might say that Genesis 9 begins with commandments for men to be fruitful, to multiply, to replenish the earth, to have respect for life, the covenant that God establishes here offers a promise that is not conditioned on man's obedience. God doesn't say, if if you will obey, then I won't destroy the earth again with a flood. He simply unilaterally declares out of His sovereignty and out of His mercy that He will never again do this. And so this covenant is is a little bit different than the covenant of life, we might call it, that we we read about in Genesis 2. In verse 10, we learn that this covenant is extended not only to Noah and to his seed after him, and we're part of that seed, but also with all the creatures Look at verse 10. And with every living creature that is with you, of the fowl, of the cattle, and of every beast of the earth with you, from all that go out of the ark to every beast of the earth. So God is making this covenant uh, with Noah and his sons and also with, with all the living creatures that were with him that had come out of the ark. In verse 11, yet for a third time, we have emphasis upon the divine initiative of making this covenant. Remember in verse 9, and I, behold, I establish my covenant. And then look at verse 11, and I will establish my covenant with you. And then he also expresses now the promises. What are the promises of this covenant? The unconditional promises that God gives. Good Hebrew fashion, he he, he, he lays it out and then he repeats it. Neither shall all flesh be cut off any more by the waters of a flood. Neither shall there any more be a flood to destroy the earth. This is the the great promise that the Lord reveals. There will be no more floods to destroy the earth. And remember, look back at Genesis 8. Moses had also already told us that this was what God was thinking in his heart. Remember? Remember? Back in uh, verse uh, uh, 
20 through verse 22 of Genesis 8, where we're told that the Lord was, was thinking in his heart, or he said in his heart, and what did he say? If you look at verse 21 of Genesis 8, I will not again curse the ground any more for man's sake, for the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I again smite any more every living thing as I have done. So God had purposed that in his heart and now he's making it known. He's revealing it uh, to uh, Noah and to all who are are hearing hear his words. He's making it explicit. In addition to making known the heart of God to men, the other new thing that is now mentioned beginning in verse 12, is God's assigning of a peculiar token, an outward sign of this covenant. Look at verse 12. And God said, This is the token of the covenant which I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for perpetual generations. Notice in this statement that He is is making clear uh, who the parties or participants are. This is a, a covenant between, between God and between uh, man and every living creature. And he's also making clear in verse 12 the duration of this covenant. It is for perpetual generations. The world will not be destroyed by the means of a flood again. It doesn't mean the world will last forever because in 2 Peter 3.10 we're told how the world is going to end. The earth also and the works that that are therein shall be burned up, Peter says. But there will no more be a flood upon the earth. In verse 13, the token is made clear. It will be a bow. Look at verse 13. I do set my bow in the cloud and it shall be for a token of a covenant between me and me. And the earth. The bow here, of course, is the rainbow in the clouds. It is a token of this covenant between God and the earth. And that term there would encompass all the inhabitants of the earth, man and beast. We need to recall here that according to the Genesis narrative, prior to the flood and the 40 days and 40 nights of rain, prior to the flood there had been no rain. If you look back at Genesis 2, verses 5 and 6, there had been no rain, and the the earth was watered, we're told, by a mist. And so there was no rain until the flood. Assumed also at this point is the formation then of rain clouds and the water cycle that we now know as normal today. As water continually rises uh, from the earth into the clouds and then falls back again to the surface of the earth and then back to the clouds again and repeat. All of that's established here after the flood. And this new cycle includes now the bow that will be seen in the cloud. Verse 14 says, And it shall come to pass when I bring a cloud over the earth that the bow shall be seen in the cloud. The Hebrew word that's rendered here for bow is much like the English translation of it. It makes reference really to a weapon of war. The bow is the bow and arrow. It's a military weapon. And God puts a a bow in the sky. One commentator said this. He said, 
God hangs His bow in the sky, perhaps to signify the end of hostility and the beginning of peace. God hangs up His bow with which He has chastened the rightly, justly the sin of man. He's hung it up and said, I won't, I won't destroy the earth. I won't punish man in this way again. The Lord then declares, look at verse 15, And I will remember my covenant, which is between me and you, and every living creature of all flesh. And the water shall no more become a flood to destroy all flesh. God declares He will remember His covenant, that this bow will be there as, as a kind of a reminder. We might say, well, wait a second. God is God. Does God really need a reminder? Well, of course not. His knowledge is always infinite and perfect. This is on one hand what we would call the language of accommodation. He's speaking in a way that we can understand. God never remembers anything because He never forgets anything. On the other hand, this statement and the placement of this token is an assurance to us that He holds this covenant in remembrance. Just as He remembered Noah. Remember in Genesis 8.1, God remembered Noah. He remembers His covenant. And what is really key is that when He sees that bow, we are, are meant to... We, when we see that bow, we are meant to remember His covenant. That is stressed again in verse 16. And the bow shall be in the cloud, and I will look upon it, that I re may remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is upon the earth. There's so much repetition here. You know what? We're pretty thick of skull. We're pretty simple-minded. And we sometimes need to hear things over and over again. And so there's a lot of repetition here. And if we didn't quite get it the tenth or the dozenth time, let's hear it again. Verse 17, And God said unto Noah, This is the token of the covenant which I have established between me and all flesh that is upon the earth. You know what is really outrageous? What's really outrageous is that this incredible biblical symbol of the faithfulness of a holy and righteous and merciful God, the bow, the rainbow, has been hijacked in the 21st century by those who have twisted its meaning, saying that God approves or promotes that which He hates. But this is the way that the evil one works, isn't it? He's always trying to take biblical teaching and biblically sanctioned images to subvert them and destroy them. These are part of his tactics. Isn't it a shame that such a wonderful biblical image has been hijacked? Well, friends, we've worked through our passage. What practical instructions? Now, may we hopefully with the Spirit's help, you've already made the, some connections. But if I if I may, let me let me offer just a few reflections on, on some things we might glean or gain from this. First, 
As we meditate upon this passage, we note God's preservation. We note the preservation of Noah's family and we note the establishment of this covenant and it is a reminder to us once again that God is not finished with fallen man and that God is working out His plan of salvation. It really really goes back to that that first prophecy as we called it of the gospel back in in Genesis 3.15 that that, that, that God would uh, bring about one from the seed of woman who would uh, bruise the head of Satan, crush the head of Satan, while Satan would bruise his heel. And God is still working out His plan of salvation. He's not given up on fallen man because He has a plan for a Redeemer who is to come. Second, God has given even to fallen mankind after the flood a dominion mandate. God has given even to fallen men after the flood a dominion mandate. So let's listen to this. Be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. It is good for young men to marry. It is good for young men to marry and to have families and to have children and to raise them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. It is good to be a wise and faithful and compassionate steward of this world and all its inhabitants. It is good to have your sphere of influence where you're an agent of God's kingdom and you're working it out in your individual life first in your household and family, in your church, in our community, in this world, it is good that we are pursuing this mandate and it's still given to us, even in this fallen world. A third thing we learn from this passage. God values the life of human beings above all other creatures. We spoke to this earlier when we were back in Genesis 1. And remember, I, I talked about that video where people were asked if your, if your, if your pet was drowning and, and a human being was drowning, which would you save? You could only save one. And, and everyone was, was choosing to save their pet rather than the human being. And I said, for a Christian, this is a no-brainer. Because human beings made in the image of God. And we're just reminded of that once again. In the post-flood world, God still values the life of human beings above all other creatures. Why we are made in His image. And even though that image in us has been tarnished by the fall, it has not been obliterated. The value of man still exceeds that of any other creature. What is more, the life of man is protected by God. And therefore, one should never unjustly take the life of his brother. That means God abhors murder. God abhors suicide. God abhors abortion. God abhors infanticide. God abhors euthanasia. And friends, we have been placed here in this world as Christ describes us, like salt and light, to remind the world of this. 
That's why we're here. We hear about it all the time now. These recent discussions, even the last past few weeks, about this woman in Texas trying to subvert the abortion laws there. You know what's so beautiful to see, though, were, were people on Twitter saying, you know, our child was diagnosed with that same thing, but you know, we brought, we brought that child to term, and, and we had a sweet 24 hours of that child. We didn't take that child's life. We had a sweet 24 hours. That's, that's having a Genesis 9 mindset about things. Since 2021, in our neighbors to the north, Canada, they expanded uh, uh, an assisted suicide law. It's known as uh, the, known by the terrible acronym MAID, M-A-I-D, Medical Assistance in Dying. Since they did that in 2021, there's been an ever-increasing number of people who are sick, people who are poor, and even people who are merely depressed who have been put to death in the name of mercy. In 2022, 4% of all the deaths in Canada have been by assisted suicide. 4% of the people in that population who have died, died because they were put to death by the medical establishment. That's an offense against the holy God. And friends, again, we have been put here as sentinels, as salt and light influencers to speak up if anyone should ever try to bring that to our nation and to advocate uh, for it against its practices in other nations. Fourth, capital punishment, however, is a biblically justified punishment for the shedding of man's blood as long as it is lawfully administered by the civil magistrate, who, as Paul said in Romans 13, does not bear the sword for nothing. Fifth, gleaning. God will never again destroy the world by flood or by any other means before the final end of all things at the coming of Christ. See, he destroyed the world with a flood and then he recreated, rebuilt it. That's never going to happen again. When the world is destroyed, the final time, it'll be when Christ comes in glory. And as it says in 2 Peter 3.10, this world will be, and the, the works within it will be burned up. There will be no recreation of it. After that, there will be a new heavens and a new earth that will replace it. So what does this mean? It means we need not fear climate alarmists or internet conspiracy theorists. God has made a covenant with us. And every time we see a bow in the clouds, we can remember that covenant. Six, just as God gave an outward token of His covenant after the flood, so He continues to give outward signs or tokens of spiritual realities. Baptism is one such sign. And the Lord's Supper is another. So every time we see someone baptized, every time we have the opportunity to take the bread and the cup, we're being given a token 
of the new covenant. The new testament that has come to us through His blood. Through His life-giving blood. Life-exalting blood. Seventh and finally, we are reminded that after the flood came, that flood that came because of man's sin, God brought about a renewed creation. We saw all the repetition of the things that have been said in Genesis 1 and 2 are repeated now in Genesis 9. And we might perhaps draw a parallel to salvation. In 2 Corinthians 5.17, Paul said, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. All things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Before we come to know Christ, we are in ruins. But God sees fit to salvage men. And He makes them to be new creatures in Christ. And He works with where they are to bring them where they might be. He continues to make of us what we ought to be. So, there's a recreation, renewal movement that's going on, spiritually speaking, with every person who comes to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. There's life after the flood. Even eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen? Amen. Let me invite you to stand together. Let's join in prayer. Gracious and loving God, we give thee thanks for this ancient account of things that happened in in days long ago, but things uh, that are are having um, an impact today. This covenant persisting through perpetual generations and coming down to us. And so God, uh, help us uh, to be... uh, wise stewards of the the mandates you have given to us. Help us to live as redeemed people in a fallen world. Help us to be salt and light. We can do nothing uh, by ourselves, but we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. And so aid us and help us. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.